I have found that in a lot of companies, they know the answer. Some of these big companies are so great at collecting data, they're just not paying attention to what the data is showing them. So one of the things that a leader can do is a leader can just decide to not have have bully me a part of their culture. They can just say, hey, we have a no bullying policy here at this particular workplace. And then I think the other thing that they can do is to really start to, to dig into the data that they're collecting. I mean, mo- a lot of companies collect data around attrition rates and who's leaving. And I think it, it becomes very easy to see some of the managers who are leaking people. Welcome, I'm your host Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. This is episode 50, so let me take a small pause to mark this milestone. It's been two years and one month since I interviewed my first guest, Raj Kapoor. I want to give him special thanks because he trusted me and agreed to help me start this journey, where I was just following an intuition and a gut feeling. I am equally grateful to all the guests who came on the show. Obviously, there would be no show without them. And I also learned a tremendous amount from each conversation. Most importantly, though, I am really grateful to you who are listening right now. Whether this is the first time you're exploring the show or whether you're a loyal subscriber, time is precious and we all have commitments and options. And I do not take lightly the fact that you're choosing to spend some of your time with me. So let me just say thank you from the bottom of my heart. I am working hard to make each episode better. And while 50 feels like a big number now, there will be a day when it will be small compared to the total number of episodes. Okay. Thank you for coming with me on this little celebration tour. And now let's talk about today's show. So last week, we talked about leadership in public service with Kim Driscoll, the mayor of Salem, who's running to become lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. Our guest today is also on a mission to create massive impact. Zanika Chatman went from being a victim of bullying in the workplace to actually becoming an advocate and to work actively to solve the problem. Given her personal experience, her specific focus is on the bullying of women of color. We had a really rich discussion on the topic. We started from a general point, and Zanika had a ton of practical advice on what individuals who may be victims, what HR departments, what business leaders, and what colleagues and peers can do to prevent and stop bullying in the workplace. Then we zoomed in on the challenges specifically faced by women of color and why that is a problem that has its own lens and that it needs to be tackled individually. I hope this episode will inspire you and maybe give you the courage to speak up if you feel you're being a victim of bullying. Or, if you're not, help you keep your eyes open on your workplace and help make it a better place if needed. Zanika, welcome to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to have you. Let's start. Uh, give my listeners, you know, who you are and a little bit of what's relevant in your story up to here, how you got to the point where you're here. I like to say that I am a communications manager turned life coach, but I think I've been coaching my entire life. I've always been that person that people just want to tell all their business to, do you know? <laughs> but um, as I moved through my career, I actually had a very negative working experience. One of my jobs, I thought that I was at the height of my career. It was, it was the dream job. I was living the dream 
when my friends complained about work, I thought they were crazy. I totally could not relate. I was like, guys, my job is amazing. Until one day I went to work and it just was not. And I was met with what I now know to be actual bullying behavior in the workplace. But it definitely took me, it almost took me down. I mean, I had all the confidence in the world. If you would have talked to me then, I had all the confidence in the world. I loved my job. I loved my team. I loved the organization and the work that I was doing. But going through that situation, I really just became a shell of myself and who I was. And once 2020 hit and all these conversations after the death of George Floyd sparked all of this DEI conversation, I started to have more conversations with other women, other women of color. And I was just shocked to learn that so many of us had suffered almost identical situations in the workplace. And probably that summer, summer of 2020, I really just vowed to change the face of leadership in this country and help women of color to take back their power, to earn their voice, and to really start to work together to demand a seat at the table. Yes. And to give context to our listeners, I think that when that moment happened to you, you were not like, you know, fresh of college, new experienced person, not able to be in a corporate environment. Because I think when I looked at your LinkedIn, there's probably about 10 years of experience in corporate America. Is that correct? Yeah, I was probably in that particular team, I was probably one of the most experienced at that time. So I had been working in this field of strategic communications for almost 10 years by the time I got to that role. Aside from the obvious reason that you experienced it personally, what were some of the other drivers in your decision to leave corporate America and dedicate fully yourself to this cause? Because that's a big career change. Yeah. So I think the interesting thing that people will find about me is that I I have not quite left corporate America. I still feel like there's a lot of change that has to happen. And I'm, I, I want to be in it to affect that change. I feel like I need to be at the table to, to have some of that change. But I think the catalyst for me was just realizing that there was so much talent and there's so much that women of color have to give and want to give to their to their jobs but when you are being mistreated when you're being discriminated against it really impacts how you show up and so it's it's kind of like this double edged sword of what is happening to you is affecting you and then you don't want to show up the same way so it's just this cycle that you feel like you can't get out of and i i wanted to help women to get out of that cycle to stop the cycle to understand that when you encounter a toxic work culture or a bullying environment, it has very little to do with you. It doesn't mean that you don't know how to do your job. It doesn't mean that you're not great at your job. Oftentimes, most of the people who have been impacted by bullying are really the rock stars of their teams. Yeah, these are really important observations about the dynamics of bullying. And I'm very excited that we'll get to talk about it in more detail in a little bit. But I am still very curious. I would love our listeners to hear a little bit more about your personal journey. So you started your own business and was that in the middle of the pandemic or before? That was right smack dab in the middle of the pandemic. I, I probably started the day that I celebrate that I made the big announcement was July of 2020. So if you can think back to where we were that summer. That's what I was doing. I was starting this business. 
Well, it's two years ago, so congratulations, because it, it's a business that it's difficult to get in to begin with and to start in the middle of a pandemic. It's pretty amazing. So as you thought about building your business, what were some of the steps that you took? The steps that I took in building the business, one, I had to get comfortable with telling this story. I had not really shared publicly that I had gone through this. And so I had to get a little courageous because I knew that there were going to be lots of people that had lots of things to say. Some people may or may not be supportive. I knew that I had some old co-workers who may have witnessed some things that were going to have some feelings around what I was sharing. And so that was kind of the first really big step of, of feeling like, you know, this story is important. This, this work is important. But getting comfortable with whether or not I wanted to be one of the faces and one of the voices in this fight, right? And so that required a lot of courage. It required a lot of dropping my own ego, right? Like that happened to me, but this fight is not about me. And am I going to allow myself to give way to the fear of what some arbitrary people might say? Or am I going to get in the fight? And am I really going to, in this time, you know, that time of 2020 that felt like we'd never seen a time like this? Am I going to let it pass me by or not? And then from there, it was really just the practical stuff of actually like saying, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm offering. How can I help you? How can I help your organization with this? And really just kind of taking that first step. I love that you're talking about the courage in this first step. What were some of the factors that helped you find the courage? I went back to that place of when I came right out of that very toxic situation. And I remembered how broken I was. I remembered that I was the person that if I could do nothing else, I could talk, I could communicate to people. I always defaulted to that. But I was so nervous. I, I, I didn't even have the confidence to send emails. And I also remember during that time that people were people were leaving work. <laughs> they were starting businesses. And I was having all these conversations in these groups and hearing other women and hearing other women of color talk about what was holding them back. And a lot of them had been inside of a corporate structure. And it was all the same things. You know, when you're constantly picked apart, when people are constantly questioning you, when you have to prove that you actually graduated from the Ivy League school that you graduated from, it starts to chip away at your confidence. And I was like, this, not just the bullying, but all of the other things, this is what's holding us back. And that was really the catalyst for me saying, okay, how did I pick myself back up from that place? And this is what I have to offer to the world. This is what I'm going to share with these women. So that, hey, if you want to start the business, you've got to have the, the mental fortitude and capacity to do that. You've got to start to behave like a CEO and not this terrified employee anymore. You know, when you talk about behaving like a CEO, it's very important to speak up and to say you've gone through this experience, but then to take the additional step of building a credible persona and person who can actually in a practical way address the issues and drive change. If you think back about your journey up to 
you know, when you started experiencing the bowling, what were some moments in your life that you feel helped you prepare for making that transition? <laughs> I have to credit my mom with this story. But if you were ever to meet her, she would she loves to tell this story of when I was a senior in high school and the school board, somebody made some crazy change and I was just not having it. <laughs> and I marched my little 17-year-old self into the school board meeting and I said, oh, I remember what it was. They had changed the requirement for a student to graduate with like high honors. So there was a cord involved and I was not about to let any cords go to waste. I had worked very hard um, these last three years for this honor cord and they changed it my senior year. And I was so upset that they, they would change the rules in the middle of the game and impact so many students. And none of my friends wanted that fight. They were like, just let it go, Zanika. But my mom will tell this story that I walked into the school board meeting and I made my case and I stood there and I argued that this was not fair. And I didn't win that battle. And we got right up to graduation. And there was another parent at another school, a more prominent school, a school that carried more weight in our community who realized the week of graduation that their child was not going to graduate with honors. And we got a call from a school board member that said, your daughter and all of her friends will be getting their cords. And so I think that that taught me that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how old you are. You know, I was, I was a child, right? <laughs> Compared to those school board members, they would have said, we know best. But I think that my parents instilled in me that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you came from. I, I came from just the regular high school, not the most prominent community. But you have a voice and you have a right to use your voice. Maybe the outcome might not always be what you expect in the moment. But when you stand up for yourself, at the very least, you'll always be able to say, I spoke up for what was right. And that is the legacy that I want to leave for the young people that I'm inspiring that you have a right to use your voice. That is fabulous. Obviously, the inspiration, the courage was clearly there from the beginning. As you think about the other part, right, which is not only I need to be inspired, not only I need to be courageous, but I need to be credible. And I need to be able to translate this into action. What were some of the key experiences that helped you get to that point when you went out on your own? Having kind of understood what my process was for putting myself back together and getting to a place where, and I often tell the, the, the ladies that I work with, you have to get to a place where you can acknowledge what happens to you without resolution. Because oftentimes in these working situations, you may not ever get that resolution, right? That call may not ever come. And, and for most of us, when we're mistreated, I mean, we're humans. We want to know like, what does the revenge look like? <laughs> but you may not get that. And you may still have to work across the table with those coworkers that you feel like, you know what? You didn't stand up for me. Where were you when I needed you? But you have to learn how to get that resolution for yourself. So once I really kind of started to understand what it looks like to put my confidence back in place, what it looks like every day to ground myself in truth, because there were a lot of lies that got laden on me during that time period. 
But when I really understood, hey, you have to ground yourself in truth every day. You have to be able to acknowledge what happened to you. You have to be able to heal without the resolution that you're hoping for. I think knowing that those were kind of some of the steps and it's exactly kind of what I work through with my clients on an individual basis. That felt like, hey, that's all I need right now to go forth and share this message with other people. I don't need, I think oftentimes when we're starting businesses, we feel like we need the trappings of a successful business. We need it to look a certain way. But when people are really hurting, they just want the aspirin. (laughs) Just give them the aspirin. I love what you're saying because it really is at the core of sometimes people try to start something and they do something and they feel they don't have permission to do it until there's this all other infrastructure on that they may not have the right degree or if you're starting a business, they don't have the website. But at some point, just starting at a smaller scale can help you then get the trappings. Yeah. And I didn't have any of that. Like I tell people all the time, I didn't have any of that. I literally had, I had my voice, I had my story and I had my iPhone. And that was where I started with those things. What was it like to get the first client? It was a bit of a double-edged sword, right? Because it felt good to hit that first goal of getting that first client. But it also felt, it was a little disappointing to just know that, gosh, here's another person that went through what I went through. And that was disappointing, but it was also very hopeful because I knew, I knew that she was going to come out of it. And I knew that once we did the work together, she was going to come on the other side of it and she was going to shock herself. And it feels a little bit like that every time. There's a little bit of like, gosh, we haven't solved this problem yet, but I know that you are going to get to the other side of this. You've been at this now for two years, which is remarkable. When was the moment that you knew that it was actually going to last and go? I knew that this was going to go the distance when I had clients who were like, I can't even fathom the thought of this person, you know, Because sometimes, most people, you know, you don't always end up at a different company. You might end up at another job. So all the same players are there. And I think when I started to have clients who, when they started with me, I mean, they were like, I can't even, I don't even know who I am anymore. And they ended up saying, hey, there was this great opportunity for networking. My old manager or the person that I perceive to be my bully He may be there, he may not, but you know what? I was not going to let him stop me from missing out on this opportunity. And to go from, I want to log off of my computer every time I see this person's name on an email in a group chat to physically putting yourself in the room with that person and still feeling like that situation no longer owns you. You can still go into the room and get what you came for. That was when I knew. That's amazing. So I want to take advantage of your expertise on this topic and talk about overall the issue of bullying in the workplace. Start maybe from a 30,000 feet view, and then we can go actually in your specific area of expertise. So what are some of the examples of bullying in the workplace? And if you're an employee that's on the receiving side of it, what may be some early warning signs? What it actually looks like is a persistent pattern of mistreatment in the workplace that causes physical or emotional harm. 
So that can be verbal, that can be psychological, that can be humiliation. And honestly, the stats on it, I think our Workplace Bullying Institute puts it at 30% of American workers, but nobody really knows because it's so underreported, right? So there's not, there's stats on it, but again, it's very underreported. So what that might look like, it could look like you're consistently the target of practical jokes, or maybe you're paid time off leave consistently gets denied with no reasons. Maybe you get assignments without clear direction. And then there's a backpedaling of, well, you didn't do what I asked, but there wasn't clear direction to begin with. One very key indicator is like excessive performance monitoring, which I know a lot of managers think that that means they're doing really good. But sometimes that can also be perceived on the other end as a bit of bullying behavior. And just, you know, consistently overly unjust criticism. So that's a little bit of like what it actually looks like, how it manifests. And then oftentimes, though, it's a combination of all of those things. So if you can imagine being an employee and you're getting bombarded with all of that consistently, what that feels like. It's interesting because some of those behaviors, there are certain companies where that's actually overall the norm. Like they're like their company. I think there's still a, a way to look at management. Uh, you can, you know, the carrot or the stick. And some people believe that the stick is really important or some companies where people want to drive performance by always making you feel like you're coming up short. So you will give more. Is there a way when you're actually looking at a potential employer to start screening for this type of things to say like, oh, maybe that's really a place where there's a higher risk? Yeah. One of the things that I actually do now, if I'm interviewing with someone, I just flat out ask. I say, hey, do you have a policy that addresses workplace bullying? You can just ask them that. Or what's your take on that? What's your stance on, on workplace bullying? You can ask a specific manager, how would you describe your leadership style? Because I, you know, I treat interviews now because I understand how important it is to be in an environment where you feel like you can thrive. So I have no problem interviewing a potential employer just as much as they're interviewing me. And I may ask, can I speak to other members of the team? Is that something that you would allow me to do? And I will ask them, what's this environment like? What's this culture like? How would you describe this leader, this manager? If, if you were hiring your best friend, would you tell your best friend to come to come work at this company? I love all of this. I love the thing that you just said. I interview my employer as much as they interview me. I think that's something that people forget in the process. That the match needs to work on both sides. And you know, like no matter how much you think you want that job, if you don't want that job, like if you don't go through the process of seriously interviewing them as much as you do, you're not going to last there. If you have not done your due diligence on choosing the right place for you. And I think that can also help in some cases because, yeah, you didn't get the job, but, you know, going back, you can like, oh, I, I didn't get the job, but did I really want the job, right? Yeah. And sometimes asking those questions You'll learn right in that second, I do not want this job. This is not the place for me. And, and I often get the follow-up question to that is people who say, but you know, maybe they're not as forthcoming in the interview. So you get there, what do you do then? And what I tell people is you keep looking, you keep watching, you keep looking for the cues 
And if something in your intuition, because we know every time we've stayed in, in an environment that we, was not good for us, we knew right away when I, the worst of the bullying that I've experienced, when I first got to the company, I had three people in a row say, we're so excited that you're here. You work for so-and-so and you know, Bob is Bob. And the first time I had no idea what that meant. I was like, huh, what does that mean? The second person said it. And then by the time the third person said it, my intuition told me right then, this person is going to be a problem <laughs> or could be a problem. Or there, there is an idea around this office that this person could be a problem. But I didn't probe further. I didn't say, tell me what that means. <laughs> I want to build on this idea. There's an idea around this office that this person may be a problem. So if we move the notion of tackling workplace bullying from this is what you as an employee or prospective employee can do to avoid putting yourself in the situation and we move to the next year what are some steps that hr departments can take to start preventing this type of behavior yeah so i think hr departments need to get very clear on helping companies define their culture I think HR departments can play a huge role in developing some of this bullying culture because it's not something that we actually even think about. I mean, when I start talking about workplace bullying, most people go, I've never even considered it. When we talk about bullying, we always think about small children on a playground. But I often tell people, well, young bullies grow up to be adult bullies too, right? That behavior, that bullying behavior, it doesn't go away just because you you get older, you still have that in you. So I think that HR departments can help to really define culture and help to create policy that supports employees around this. I, I also think that we still have a notion in a lot of companies, to your point, that some of this really negative, really oppressive behavior is actually what makes good leadership. And I have been, I've been reading leadership books since I graduated college. Not in any one have I said, make people feel like crap and they will be amazing employees. I've not read that one time, right? So <laughs> we have to let go of this notion that being mean to people creates better employees. And I also think that, I think HR departments need to really start paying attention to some of the patterns. There, there have been in, in several of, of the bullying instances that I've coached people through there are patterns of these people presenting negative behavior. And I think we have to start to get comfortable with these uncomfortable conversations because I don't think all leaders, I don't even think all bullies are bad people, but I just think when that, when that behavior goes unchecked for so long, well, now it's hard to come back and tell me. I've been making people cry for 10 years. What do you mean I need to change? And I've been rewarded for that for 10 years. So I think we have to start to get comfortable with these uncomfortable conversations and helping managers and helping our leaders understand this kind of behavior is not going to be tolerated, but we're going to support you through that. We're going to give you the tools to lead people effectively in a way that makes people want to show up for work and not run out the door. Taking in one more step, we've talked about the HR department, but obviously the HR department is an important line in the sand. It's an important department, but we all know that culturally, 
ultimately sometimes the hr department is not is seen as oh you know they're the paper pushers or you know or they're the police or whatever so what can a leader of a you know big team or department or even a ceo what should they be looking for you know looking from the top to find and prevent instances of some of their subordinates some of their middle manager etc be bullies what are some of the watch out for and some of the steps that they can take to prevent that I, I love this question because I have found that in a lot of companies, they know the answer. They have like some of these big companies are so great at collecting data. They're just not paying attention to what the data is showing them. So so one of the things I, I think that a leader can do is a leader can just decide to not have, have bullied me a part of their culture. They can just say, hey, we have a no bullying policy here at this particular workplace. And then I think the other thing that they can do is to really start to, to dig into the data that they're collecting. I mean, a lot of companies collect data around attrition rates and who's leaving. And I think it, it becomes very easy to see some of the managers who are leaking people. And again, I think it goes back to not wanting to have those difficult conversations of saying, listen, manager, something is happening. We can't because and we also know just from regular reviews that usually people leave because of managers. It's one of the top reasons that people will leave (laughs) a particular job. And so just being honest about those things, again, I don't think that it is to make anyone feel bad. That's not my goal. But I think it's just to say, listen, we now have data that says something is happening with this team. And how can we support you? We're going to investigate it, but we need to know how can we support you and we need to understand what's happening here so we can support you in being a better manager and we can support your employees in having a workplace that suits them and suits their needs. Thank you. That is very helpful. So let's add one final angle to this conversation. We've talked about the perspective of the victim. We've talked about what HR people can do. We've talked about what a leader can do. Um, what do you do if you are actually a peer of the person that's being bullied and you witness that happening? Yeah, I, I think that is a very important piece. And I'm so glad you asked me that question because bystanders are just as important in stopping this bullying behavior as leadership is. Especially if you're a person of color, if you're an underrepresented person, sometimes being in this structure, there's a lot of fear that if you go to an HR One, that's going to backfire. There's going to be retaliation, but also that you won't even be believed. And I can't tell you how many of my clients have had HR, you know, they're explaining the situation. They've got all their documentation and having someone in HR say, well, you know, she didn't, she didn't really mean it that way. And it's kind of like, well, how many other ways could, could she have said what she said or meant what she said? And so I think it's very important for other people who are witnessing this. And if you're seeing this, and you're like, man, that is not right. Help your teammate out by you actually taking the stance and just saying, I've noticed some things that I don't think are right. And I just want to document this as well on this person's behalf. They may not, they may not ever be able to do that for themselves, but sometimes just knowing that you or several of you are going on this person's behalf, that can go a long way as well. And in that instance, obviously, if you're somebody who's being bullied, 
There may be fear that even if someone else speaks on your behalf, there may be retribution. So how do you recommend a bystander take action? Do you recommend that they actually go and talk to the bullied victim before they approach HR? I probably wouldn't. Mm -mm. I would not recommend that. I think it carries better weight if they go straight to a reporting structure, an ethics line, an ethics committee, because that person could be putting themselves in, in the retaliation as well. So if they're not kind of colleague to colleague, it could get a little messy. Okay, great. So just to be perfectly clear, you don't think that when you someone witnesses bullying, going to the victim first is necessarily the best step? You don't have to. I actually, and I'll just share my personal experience. When I was being bullied at the worst, I actually had a teammate who went to her sponsor on my behalf and said, I, I am seeing some things that I really don't think are right. And because he was at a different position in the company, he was able to get some some action, some traction in a different way. And I never knew that she did that until many years later. So I would say that you don't have to do that. You don't have to make the other person aware because, you know, we all have our own intuition. And so if you're seeing something that's intuitively telling you, man, I don't think how they're treating this person is, is right and is fair. You also have the ability to, to have that conversation on your own. And you don't have to make that known to the person because they might be embarrassed. They may not necessarily want you to do that, but that doesn't mean that you have to be a bystander and allow this bullying behavior to go on. Yeah, when you put it in these terms, it actually makes total sense to me that the most effective way to help a colleague or coworker who's being bullied is to have a discreet conversation with somebody from HR in a very confidential way and that will allow action to be taken without putting different people at risk within the organization. And, and I think that with this final angle, we have covered pretty extensively the general topic of bullying in the workplace. So what I'd like to do now is focused on your particular area of focus and it's an area that is a large and very problematic part of the overall phenomenon of bullying in the workplace. And it is the bullying of women of color. So you said that when you, when you started speaking out, you received an enormous amount of calls from other women of color, and you were shocked by the amount of responses that you got. Let's start framing this specific issue and what makes it unique and what makes it so relevant. Part of what makes it unique, I think one of the things that we have to talk about is when you are a person of color, I think there's a perception that that is kind of what everybody thinks is happening. So when I started to get bullied and get discriminated against, I recognized that I was one, I was the only person of color in that team, but I did not want to place that label on it. So there's this immediate downplaying of your own intuition of what's happening to you. So you start to kind of lie to yourself a little bit and say, no, 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 that's, that's not what happens. Or when you get hit with a microaggression, no, 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 they didn't, they didn't mean it that way. That wasn't like, that wasn't a racially fueled thing. But I think when you start to look at the numbers of how many people report being discriminated against, even though every group will say, hey, I've been discriminated against Black employees report being discriminated against based on race 
at a 75% rate compared to our counterparts. So we feel like we experience racial discrimination more than any other group. And so particularly with, with Black women, we also don't have the support structures that our other colleagues do. So oftentimes, it's not just the bullying, but it's the bullying on top of, well, we're not getting the same quality of work. So we're not even getting the work that allows us to excel in the career, right? We don't have the networks that other people do. And so I think it is that, I think it's also people's individual unconscious bias that what made it easy for people to bully me is we were, we were a team of all women, but they would often say in, in my, my white counterparts, I see my niece in her. She reminds me of my niece. So there's this familiar relationship, whereas with me, there wasn't any of that, right? So I guess I can't really pinpoint what makes it unique other than the fact that people of color don't often want to own up that that is what's happening. And so we end up staying in the situation so long so that we can justify that this is not happening to me. Like I am not being discriminated against when everybody around you can see that you are. When you talk to other women of colors, the, the women that have reached out to you, obviously you, you mentioned a couple of patterns around the the not getting the best work and then the the trying to say, oh no, this is not happening because it's racially motivated, etc. What are some of the other elements and common themes that you've heard from your from your peers who've gone through similar experiences? Yeah, so I think microaggressions are definitely one that everybody can relate to. And I'll, I will say mostly around Black women is there, we carry this perception of not wanting to be perceived as angry. So we don't want the angry Black women stereotype. So there's, a, there's also a nuance to how you speak up or how you present yourself. So if, if my counterpart goes into a meeting and she's very boisterous and, and very like flamboyant about how she is defending her point, wow, she's so passionate. But if I do that, if I even raise my voice just a little bit, or even if I don't raise my voice, if I'm very stoic, it's always this like, why are you mad? Don't get mad. Don't be mad about it. Or people will tell women of color sometimes, because because we are, right? We're trying to balance this like, I don't want to get too passionate because that doesn't work for me. I don't want to be perceived as angry. So people will say, well, I just, I can't figure you out. And so, so there's all of those dynamics that I think women of color are, are carrying how we navigate the pressures of the workplace, while also just sometimes just being absolutely bullied and harassed. Obviously, it would be great to have a, a magic wand and take it all out. But in absence of a magic wand, actually, companies can take practical steps to address this, right? Well, some of... So, if we have to layer, you know, we talked a little earlier about some of the steps that HR people can take to address bullying overall. What are some additional steps that relate specifically to bullying of people and, and then specifically women of color? So I, I think that companies can start to center women of color in some of their DEI initiatives. I think that if you talk to a lot of women of color, they will tell you that some of the DEI initiatives that everybody was so gung ho to implement just two years ago have fallen short. 
and they're not. And, and a lot of numbers continue to remain stagnant of, of women of color moving into those C-suite positions. I think that companies can be very intentional about creating some of those networks because that's something else that we know women of color suffer from greater is that they don't have the same kind of connection. So, you know, a lot of times the the rhetoric around mentoring is to get a sponsor. Well, that is awesome. But when you don't have a sponsor, what do you do? If your other sponsors are people of color who are also not in the room when the decisions are being made, how does one get a sponsor? So being intentional about making sure that we really are creating a diverse pipeline. And I think some companies are a little shy to do that. But I think that the only way that you you are going to implement and create change is to be intentional about it. Um, and then I'm really big on on having having some kind of policy and specific wording around bullying and harassment. I mean, we have most companies will have a no harassment policy, but I think we need to take take it a step further and really look at at bullying policies. And I think we need to I think that companies need to start asking those questions in their employee engagement surveys and see what happens. Have you encountered, you know, now in your work and talking to so many other people that have been and women of color that have been bullied and discriminated and maybe looking into more companies, have you encountered places that actually have, oh, here's an example of a great practice that is actually helping and creating impact? Not yet, but I won't say that that doesn't exist. A lot of my work right now is on the individual. And I believe that if we can put the people back together, that they can help create change. I won't say that there aren't any. I just haven't seen any yet. I think you mentioned earlier, you know, the mentoring and the fact, well, if I'm being mentored, but somebody who's also being discriminated, what are some of the, have there been cases of some of your clients that have you know, being able to kind of like overcome this and then be in a mentoring position and being effective at mentoring and some of other, you know, to prevent other people to to get into the same situation. Yeah. So I've had some clients who have gone from, I will say, just being in, in the throes of a, of a bullying situation to go from that to a place where they are mentoring other people, but also a place to where they feel like they can advocate for themselves and ask people who really could be sponsors to sponsor them and support them. And so I think that that is all what happens when you're able to kind of put the confidence and put the pieces back together and really get connected back to who you are and what kind of work experience you want to have so that you start to own your own story a little bit. This has been great. So I want to close this conversation. I always like to ask my guests for tips. And so I want to do something a little different today. So assuming that hopefully among the people who are listening here, there are leaders of various kind who actually have the opportunity to make an impact within their company. What are two or three actions that you would want somebody who's listening now to say like, hey, I can do the, you know, I can take the steps and make the environment better in my company? I think one of the first things that they can do is if they're in a position of power to look around your organization. I mean, to really look around your organization and see if does this organization truly represent the people and the customers that we serve or does this organization truly represent my values? I think another very easy thing that leaders can do is to have a conversation 
if you have women of color in your organization, and it doesn't have to be the one that sits right next to you, it can be, but stretch yourself a little bit and really go have a conversation with that person who maybe is not in that middle management position, but you've heard good things, you've heard their name and have a conversation with them and really ask them, hey, what has your experience been like here? And how can I help you? And then I think the other thing that is always a plus for any manager is to really consider some coaching training. I, I just wholeheartedly believe, I know there are some coaches that are bullied, but but I just believe that when you come to leadership from a place of coaching and a place of service, it's really hard to bully somebody. I agree wholeheartedly with you. As somebody who's also been trained as a coach, I find that in my non-coaching work, I, I bring so much of the things that I learned in that as a manager that that is of incredible value. Yeah. Okay. We are now going to move to more on the personal side. What is an interest or an hobby or a passion that you have that is not work-related and you know, has that in any way, shape, or form influenced also the way that you work? A hobby that I have right now <laughs> is um, I have a 17-year-old niece and she is all about the K-dramas. So that has become our new hobby. And she really teaches me a lot about not really caring what anybody else thinks. I mean, she is a young Black teenage girl that is all about K-pop and K-dramas and she does not care that she's breaking all the stereotypes and I love that about her. And I think she she teaches me a lot. Hanging out with her teaches me a lot about just not taking anything too seriously, enjoying life, laughing. That is fantastic. People discount how much we can learn from 17-year-olds. <laughs> Great teachers. Absolutely, especially this generation. Yes. This is an amazing generation. I think I'm a, I'm an older Gen Xer and I am so inspired by Gen Z people. I have a lot of hope for the world. Question that you and I have talked about before this episode. Here it comes. What is the expression or the business cliche that drives you crazy? Try to think of the one that bubbles up to the top. I've got a couple. If you have more than one, go ahead. So I do. I'm going to share two. One is I hate the notion of so-and-so is just so-and-so. I feel like that is when it's like we are giving up on the culture that we want to create and we are just allowing this person to mess up our culture and we're okay with it because we don't want to have the uncomfortable conversation of letting them know that their behavior is really no longer going to be tolerated. So that's probably my top one. I think my second one is I really hate when like after a meeting, people say, we're going to give you five minutes back. It's like time is not really yours to give. And two, this whole meeting could have been an email anyway. So you're not really helping me with this five minutes. But I hate this notion of people like, oh, I'm going to gift you time back as if it was theirs to give in the first place. Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> a few friends have made that same observation and I've been trying when I finish meeting early to not say, I'm going to give you the time back. I go like, okay, we're going to finish early so everybody can, you know, go on to other things that are very pressing for you. Or I, I agree with you on that. Okay. Final question. I call it food for the body or food for the soul. And you can choose 
You can either share a recipe or a drink that you love, or if you want to go the soul route, a book, a movie, a piece of music, a piece of art, a play, something that inspires you. Hmm. So I am going to go with soul and I am going to kind of, so my, my absolute favorite movie, I love movies. I'm a movie junkie. And my favorite one is Forrest Gump. And I just love that movie because I mean, even from start to finish, here's this person that if we weren't watching the movie, right? If Forrest Gump was sitting on that bench next to us, how many of us would just write him off? as stupid, whatever. I don't want to talk to this guy. But he didn't let any of that actually stop him. And he was so simple in everything that he did that created these huge ripple effects in his life. So I love that movie that it teaches me that like, just keep it simple. He had a very full life, but he was so simple. And I just, I love that from start to finish. Sanika, thank you very much. I love this conversation, a really important conversation, chock full of insights. And thank you for sharing your story and for all the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends and post about it on social media. Everything helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode when I release them. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Good Pods or Apple, please leave a rating or a review. And remember, the best review left before the end of August will get a free copy of Susan Cataneo's album, All Is Quiet. Also, stay tuned because at the end of the credits, I will play a song by Susan Cataneo. If you think you're a victim of bullying and need help, or if you are an executive looking for help in creating programs to prevent bullying in your companies, you can find Zanika on our website, zanikachatman.com, spelled Z-E-N-I-C-A-C-H-A-T-M-A-N.com. And of course, that's also the spelling of her name when you look for her on LinkedIn. You can find me online at al4ep.com with the number four, And you can email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, look for at al4edp. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with the help of Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. The Susan Cattaneo song I chose today, it's a little different from her other work. It's a song she wrote over 10 years ago for a friend who was going through a traumatic time. And the song is about the support you can find from the people who surround you. It's called Better Day.
every breath is tight and aching Cause thunder's crashing in your Day.